So we've been walking through a, a short series covering our church's mission statement, um, which is to multiply gospel communities that push back darkness or that love God, love people and push back darkness. I almost flip-flopped it. Love God, love people, and push back darkness. So Ben Hill, our pastor, has been leading us through that for a couple of weeks. Last week, we talked about loving God from the book of Mark, chapter 12. The greatest commandment, Jesus says, is to love God with all of yourself, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he says that the second greatest commandment, the second greatest way we can be obedient to God is to love our neighbors. That's what we're going to talk about today. Um, We're going to talk about loving others, loving people, loving our neighbors. Jesus sums up the whole um, ministry of God, the whole um, act of walking as a Christian in love, love of God and love for others. So if you are a Christian and you're um, trying to figure out what it looks like to grow in your faith, well, discipleship needs to look like probably a lot of things, you know, prayer and scripture reading and, and all good stuff. But discipleship also has to look like genuine love and affection for God and for others. And none of us do that perfectly. Sometimes my affection for God feels really small and other times it feels uh, a lot bigger. So it's gonna wax and wane throughout our life, but we have to be after love in our walk with Jesus. James K.A. Smith is a Christian philosopher and I think he does what more Christian philosophers should do, which is doesn't just talk about ideas uh, of God or try to be smart about God, but he also is after teaching us how to worship God through something like philosophy. So he says this about discipleship. He says discipleship, which just means maturity in Jesus, growing up, is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus's command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his. Let's bring those into alignment. To want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. That's a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God, the people who love God and want what he wants, act as his presence in the world. So I just want to, before we pray today, I just want to let's lay the groundwork and clear the air and say that no single person in this room is an expert at that. I'm not. I am no guru when it comes to loving God or loving my neighbor, and neither are you. And so what we all need to do is to humble ourselves today and put on the identity of a disciple, a student of Jesus, and let's just submit the way that we love to him today. So I'll pray for us. You pray for me, I'll pray for all of us, and we'll get started. Spirit of God, I pray for, I pray for soft hearts in the room. I pray for humble and open ears in the room. I pray that you would help each of us to sit under your word, myself included, and be formed by it today. God, I'm asking that you would make us just like the woman who sat at your feet that Jordan talked about during worship, who loved you because we had been forgiven of much. Would you make that our heart, God? Show us how we've been forgiven in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So, 
We live in kind of a, a crazy time. Our culture around us is pretty obsessed with love. Maybe it always has been, but it just feels like with, with the internet and stuff like that, we're extra aware of what's going on around us. And our world is pretty obsessed with love, which is good in a lot of ways. I mean, love is great. It feels good. Um, it's fun to watch movies or read books about love. Um, but there's also some ways in which the obsession about love in the world not being formed by Jesus is just going to go astray in some important ways. Um, and that's, that's part of being a person, a sinner, right? We just naturally drift towards going astray in our loves and our ideas about God and idea, our ideas about what it means to be a person. Um, but I want to ask us to just like listen to a couple of ways that the world has gotten it wrong about love. Before we ask Jesus, what does love look like from you and from your word, um, what are some of the ways we've been malformed in our loves, right? This is not a moment for like hot takes. I'm not looking to like, there's a lot of Christians that sort of make a career out of cultural criticism and being like, that's how the world's got it all wrong. What I'm saying is like, this is in me and it's in you because we swim in this water. We're just breathing it in all the time. So let's ask ourselves, how am I being formed? Um, and how can we be reformed by God? So here's a couple of ways First is that love is exclusively emotional. The world says this. Love is absolutely emotional, friends. Uh, but if we think it is exclusively emotional, what we're going to become is people who lack any patience for long-suffering. We're going to be people who let the, our emotions take the reins of our actions and dictate our actions, and it's going to lead us to all sorts of crazy assumptions about love and about other people, right? We'll leave discipline out of our love, and we'll become flaky in our love because our emotions change every day. Here is another unhelpful ditch that we run to. It's under this first one because I think it's a reaction to it, especially in the church. We see people going crazy with their emotions out there in the world, whatever that means. And we say, well, I don't want to be that. Let me run the opposite direction. And what we do then is we decide that love is exclusively intellectual. Our part of the world in particular. Specifically in the church, we think that love is only about choice. It's only about posture. It's only about just believing the right things about God or other people, right? For example, I hope I don't do this, but if I love my wife with only my intellect, which I should love her with my intellect, I should choose my wife even on the days when I don't feel like choosing her by God's grace, right? But if I only love my wife with my intellect and my choice and my posture and never with my heart, I am a robot husband and she does not want that. I would be functioning acting like I were a sociopath towards my wife. Sociopathy is a real, like, mental health condition where emotions and empathy are distant from a person and they function primarily through their intellect. We might not have that condition, but we will act like it often in the way that we love Jesus and love others because we've decided, right, well, the world's emotionally crazy, so let's just hang out in our minds only. Christians, that is not true love. Both are necessary. The second way that the, love, that the world um, talks about love is that love is best or sometimes only expressed sexually. 
That's one that gets talked about a lot these days, but we need to keep coming back to it and remembering that the world says that the sexual is the highest expression of love for us. We let our senses and what feels good to our bodies sort of dictate the way that we move um, in love for other people. Our postures and our emotions are dictated by what we feel in our body, and it becomes transactional. Do you make me feel good? But what happens when uh, somebody's body changes, which everybody's does? What happens when life circumstances limit our opportunity for sexual expression? What about the single people in the room? Are you condemned to secondary love? Single people? Was Jesus, who was single, um, resigned to a secondary form of love? The last way is that we think that love must be 50-50 to be true. If it's not matched, if the other person doesn't give me exactly what I give them, you wash my car, I'll wash your car. I don't know, that's a weird illustration, but, um, (laughs) all right, if I do an act of service to you, I deserve the same thing in return. Uh, Personal sacrifice should never be expected unless it's met with sacrifice back to me. If there's ever a season where a person can't give me, as much as I can give them in love, well, then it must not be love. Maybe it's even toxic, and I should get out of this. It's totally defined by me stuff or by them stuff. And all of those things are actually, one, inside of us, and then, two, totally living in extremes. We're swinging back and forth, and we're unstable in the way that we love people because we're letting our emotions guide it, or our body's feelings and senses guide it, or we're letting our intellect only guide love, or we're just waiting for somebody to give us the same kind of love that we gave them, and it makes us unstable, it makes us unavailable, it teaches us that our love should be transactional, and it makes us selfish. We start to consume other people. We need a different way to define love. Friends, love of people, love of God. The Apostle John wrote this letter in the Bible called 1 John that talks so much about love, right? We were, Kaylee and I were joking about before she came up here and read the the scripture for today about like, hey, are you ready to read the word love like 7,000 times in two minutes? (laughs) And it'll trip you up as you read it, right? John talks so much about love because John saw as a good big brother and father in the church, John saw that the way that we love God and other people is massively formational for how we will follow God, right? And we need to ask the question, who defines love? Is love only about me stuff? I define love. Is it only about them stuff? That person over there defines love for me? Or is it someone else? I would say, yes, love is defined by a person. And that's my first point, that love is a person. How do we know love? We know love through Jesus. We have to get the order right. God defines love. And God's love is defined for us most clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He shapes love. He is the definition of love, right? Anyone who does not love does not know God. That is a wild statement. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, was revealed to us, was brought to us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through them, through him. And this is love. This is what love is. Not that we've loved God because we don't define love, friends. It's not me stuff. 
but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We know what love is because God decided in his free, sovereign choice, God decided to show us love. That's the only way we can know what love is. We have to come back to the source. And we've all pointed at stuff in the world and we've looked at it and we've been like, man, that's true love. Maybe it's a couple that we really respect or something we see in a movie. And we've been like, that looks like true love to me. And a lot of that stuff is super good stuff. Not all of it, but some of it's really good stuff. Um, But it's all just a shadow of the love that has been defined for us by God in Jesus Christ. That's what love is. We cannot point to a shadow and say that that's the real thing. That's backwards. We've got to look to God to define for us what it looks like to love him or to love other people. We probably all want to grow in our love for others, right? It would be weird if you didn't want to grow in your love for other people. But if we don't define love correctly, then we're going to go all sorts of strange ways with how we do that. We've got to come back to God and sit under him and experience his love in order for us to be able to love others. Here's a few questions for us all to sit under for a second, myself included. Have you noticed that when you are distant from God, you feel distant from people? Have you noticed that when your time with God is short, your temper is short with people? Have you noticed it's harder to love God or easier to forget God when you are isolated from other people? especially his church. I'd actually say it's impossible to love God truly how he deserves to be loved and be isolated from his church. We have to fight to love God and love others in the way that God, the source of love, has defined for us. And we want to see how he loves. How has he defined love for us? Well, there's a few ways. Here's a second point. Loving others requires action. John says in verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, right? So God loved me, I'm sitting with the source of love, and now what do I do? I move towards others because God moved towards me. In chapter three, the chapter right before this, which I probably could have preached out of as well because it's also about loving one another, um, John is really heavy about love and action, right? Love being a practice and not only an emotion. It is an emotion, but it's also a verb in the Bible, right? He says everyone who hates his own brother in chapter three, he says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, which is like kind of shocking. But it's because John sees that actions of our heart play out in real actions, right? Actions of our heart are in fact real actions. We need to love indeed, right? Let me read chapter three, verse 18. Beloved, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. I actually want to read the next two verses too for our good. Let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Are there any in the room that feel a little condemned this morning by the way that we have lacked love for other people or for God? That's not God's heart for you. 
God is greater than our heart. John is trying to move us towards the same thing that Jesus was trying to move us towards. If you say yes to Jesus, we need to say yes to other people, to loving other people. Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. If Jesus defines love for us, we have to wrestle with the real fact that we need our love to look like Jesus's love. And Jesus's love was not easy love. It was sacrificial. It was active. It was giving. It was self-emptying, even to the point of death on a cross. And sometimes we can get into this mindset. We're like, yeah, sacrificial love. Let's do this. Christianity, let's go. Put love on a t-shirt kind of thing. And it sounds really nice to love other people sacrificially. Or like we get kind of motivated for it in our minds. But it's actually way easier said than done. And it's way easier to abstract that kind of love than to live that kind of love. So my favorite book in the world has a really great passage that demonstrates this. It's called The Brothers Karamazov, which is a weird name because it's Russian and it's old and it's really long, kind of to the point where it's like, why? Um, but I love this book. There's a, there's a part of the book um, where there's this priest named Zosima, and the whole book is about how to live a good Christian life in the world, even when stuff is hard. And Zosima, the priest, is talking with this woman who comes to him and is like, Father Zosima, help me learn how to love other people. And he says this. It's so good. I love it. I love humanity, he said, but I wonder at myself. The more I love humanity in general, the less I love man in particular. In my dreams, he said, I have often come to making enthusiastic schemes for the service of humanity, and perhaps I might actually have faced crucifixion if it had been suddenly necessary, and yet I am incapable of living in the same room with anyone for more than two days together, as I know by experience. As soon as anyone is near me, his personality disturbs my self-complacency and restricts my freedom. In 24 hours, I begin to hate the best of men. One, because he's too long over his dinner. Another, because he has a cold and keeps blowing on his nose. I become hostile to people the moment that they become close to me, which is so true, for me at least, where it's like, I have this idea of like, I'm gonna be such a good and loving and, self and serving husband. And then like, I just get annoyed with my wife so quickly. Like that's, that's my life. I'm sorry, babe. Um, ben said it multiple times last week when he was talking about loving God. He said that we cannot just love the concept of God. We have to love God as he really is. And the same thing applies to our neighbor, friends. We have to love God and love our neighbor as they really are. And sometimes that will mean hard work and action and patience. We like the idea of love, but let's sit in this question for a moment and be honest about it. Me too. Do I have the patience to love a difficult person for an extended amount of time? Do I have that patience? Am I formed in it? Same book, um, same character, Zosima says this again. A true act of love, unlike imaginary love, is hard and forbidding. Imaginary love yearns for an immediate heroic act that is achieved quickly and is seen by everyone. People may actually reach a point where they are willing to sacrifice their lives as long as the ordeal doesn't last too long, is quickly over, just like on stage, with the public watching and admiring. A true act of love, 
on the other hand, requires hard work and patience, and for some, it is a whole way of life. And there is one for whom we know it was a whole way of life. Jesus walked that way of life for us. Hard work and patience, not about pleasing the crowds. So the question, what would Jesus do, is a great way to think about loving people in action. But maybe even more helpful would be, what would Jesus do if he were living my life? If Jesus went to your classes, how would he love people? If Jesus worked in your job or had your kids or your spouse, how would he love them? That question would help us see our circumstances, not just through the lens of um, only Jesus' actions that we read about, which we need to know those things, but also through his character and his virtues. We would know his love involved getting close to people. We know that. We read about it. And it involved getting close to people who would betray him, who would be messy, who would be sometimes kind of stupid, but all with love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, again, let's put ourselves in this. Let's not be distant from God's word, people. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, for me and for you. So what happens when we really start following in Jesus' footsteps because we know that he died for us? We're like the woman in Luke chapter 6 who sat at Jesus' feet and loved much because she had been forgiven of much. What would it look like when we start following in Jesus' footsteps and doing the things that he did? How would your life be different? You'd be a different husband or wife. You'd be a different friend in a lot of ways. You might be the same in some ways because you still, you have the spirit of God now if you believe in Jesus. But we need to, we need to keep coming back to the source of love and letting it shape us. Our third point is that loving others makes us more like Jesus, which is kind of what I just said in the second point towards the end anyway, right? But we need to say it. If we want to be mature Christians, and if you're feeling frustrated this morning, like, man, I wish I was more mature, I wish that I looked more like Jesus, or you have sin in your life, and you're just frustrated because you can't seem to get rid of it, I'm not saying that this is like the simple answer, but if we want to mature into Jesus, we have to love like Jesus. No one has ever seen God, 1 John 4 says in, chap- in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, which is true. But if we love one another, God abides in us. That's John addressing the first thing he said. No one has seen God, but if you love other people, God abides in you. And so therefore, people have seen God. And his love is perfected. That word perfected in Greek can actually mean matured. His love is matured in us if we love others. Jesus also says this, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our goal of maturity in faith, if you want to know what a mature Christian looks like, they look like God and Jesus Christ. We're formed into his ways. It is simple, but it is very much not easy. Amen? This is all over the Bible too, not just in the New Testament. The Old Testament also talks about this truth, that maturity and the things that we love are uniquely connected to one another. 
In the book of 2 Kings chapter 17, this is a negative example, but it's powerful, right? The author of 2 Kings is describing the sins of Israel, God's people. And he says of Israel that they went after false idols and they became false. You turn into the things that you love. If you love God, you'll turn into being more like God. But if you love something false, you will become false yourself. You are what you love. Your idols will make you false. They'll tempt you to eat your neighbors instead of love your neighbors. Micah chapter 3, which is also in the Old Testament, the prophet Micah talks about Israel, and he says that Israel began to eat each other. Now, it's not talking about cannibalism. Micah is talking about spiritual and emotional cannibalism. They oppressed their neighbors instead of loving their neighbors because they worshipped idols. Galatians, Paul, who wrote Galatians, picks up that same language. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Spiritual, emotional cannibalism is the result of our idolatry. And it leads us to deny other people's self-worth, their dignity, their honor, their value. But if we worship the true God, God's love abides in our hearts and actually helps us to affirm the dignity and value and worth of other people. He valued you enough to give his own body to be broken for you. He thought you deserved the dignity of being clothed in his righteousness. We didn't deserve it. He thought you could have the dignity of being clothed in his, his righteousness. If we love God, we become like him, loving our neighbors maturely and sacrificially. So we need to get the, the order right today. Love is a person, Jesus Christ. And if we submit ourselves and sit under his love, then all of a sudden we are finding ourselves growing in maturity in love as well. Love in the church manifests Jesus' presence to the world. Grown-up Christian love is 1 Corinthians 13. This is long, but bear with me. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It is not insistent on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away, but not love prophecy, deep understanding and knowledge of the mysteries of God, faith, healings, giving away everything we have, martyrdom even, without love, Paul says, is not just immaturity, but idolatry. Gongs and symbols in the Greco-Roman world were used in pagan temples to worship idols. 
If you do not have love, your best acts of Christian maturity could be idolatry. For me too. That's frightening to think about in some ways because I cannot do 1 Corinthians 13 love. On the day that I was married to my wife, Ben, who did our wedding for us, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but he read 1 Corinthians 13 and I remember him saying something to the effect of, hey, Blake, you cannot do this. And then he turned and he said, hey, Grace, you cannot do this. So what do we do with the crushing weight of like, I don't want to worship idols, but I can't do 1 Corinthians 13. My heart condemns me, God. I was short-tempered with my wife this weekend. What do I do? And what Ben did in our wedding ceremony is not let it be just a downer, because that would have been weird. Um, But he turned us back to the source of love. Jesus perfectly did this on our behalf. And then what he does is my fourth point is he turns right around and he gives us his spirit. Love for others is given to us by the spirit. How in the world can we grow in imperfectly our whole life, but how can we grow in and be a student of 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love when we're always dealing with or distracted by people who are messy, people who are annoying, the, our own lack of patience, our own ulterior motives, our past wounds with people, our disagreements that we have with people, which might be real. Our busyness, our differences in personalities. Well, I'm an Enneagram 9, and so I can't really talk to you. How can we really love other people in the way that the Bible is calling us to love other people like Jesus? John says, this is so curious to me. Maybe it will be to you too. So in verse 11, or no, in verse 12, John says, if we love one another, God abides in us, which is true. But then in verse 13, he turns right around and says, by this we know that God abides in us, that he has given us of his spirit. So he says, God abides in you because you love one another. God abides in you because he gives you his spirit. And which one is it, John? And the answer is that it's both. God's love abides in us, and we are able to love one another because he has given us of his spirit. Both are true. How do we get to abide in love? Well, Because the Spirit gives us a new heart. That comes from the Old Testament as well. Ezekiel 36 promises us, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, something that's soft, something that can be affected. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We cannot love God or others unless the spirit plants love in our chest. And what else does the spirit do for us as we are trying to walk faithfully? Empowers us to love with his gifts. Causes us to abide in God through the word and through conviction and repentance. Points us back to Jesus, again, through the word and conviction and repentance. Comforts us, intercedes for us. The spirit of the living God is praying that you would love others and love God. In Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Paul 
the apostle who wrote a lot of the New Testament, so he knows a thing or two, he identifies unity, brotherly love, sacrificial love, and attitudes towards others. He calls all three of those things participation in the Spirit. How do I know that I participate in the Spirit? Well, if I have unity, love, affection, and if I'm sacrificial. Love is more than just pure affection and emotion, and it is also more than just pure intellect and choice, but by the Spirit of God's power abiding in us, those two things can live in harmony within us. Again, we do not want to be functioning sensualists towards God letting only our emotions or our senses or what feels good in the moment guide and dictate the way that we feel about God or other people, having no patience for things that require discipline or long-suffering or obedience, but we also do not and cannot be functioning sociopaths towards God or towards other people, characterizing our emotions and our hearts as second-class citizens They are not. God gave them to you for a reason. Having no patience towards anything that feels experiential or calls for our emotions to be formed, how do I grow in patience? How do I grow in kindness and in gentleness or in love? Well, Galatians 5 says that all of those things are fruits of the Spirit. We do not need more smart Christians in the world. I'm a teacher I'm a student, I love education, I've devoted a lot of my life to study. I don't think that God just needs me to be a smart Christian. We need more spirit-filled Christians in the world who would, by the spirit, unite and harmonize affection, emotion, deep abiding in God with action and with our wills and our intellects. We need the spirit of God to anoint us to love other people in a way that would point to the son of God, Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for myself. That's our prayer for us as a church, as we're fighting to love God and love people. And next week, Ben's gonna preach about pushing back darkness. So let me pray that for us, and then Ben will come and lead us through communion. Spirit of God, we confess that we do not have love for others figured out. We're asking for you to humble us, but we're also asking God that today um, you would not let the voice of the accuser condemn us, but that you'd actually do in the table and in prayer um, what you promised to do, which is to lead us towards repentance with your own kindness, God. We pray that you'd make us soft-hearted towards you. We pray that you would help us to remember that we've been forgiven of much. We pray, Lord, that you would um, help us to depend on you, to make us hungry for your presence, Holy Spirit. We pray for more of your fruit to grow in our church. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.